Thank you for joining us. This is live with Miami's Community News. Our guest today is Donald Jones, law professor yes, at the University of Miami. And from what I understand, that you teach constitutional law. Yes, for many years. Right. For many years. So one of the things that one day somebody was talking about things that I do, I said, I do more than that. Yes, right? yes. Right? And the other stuff was more important than how they identified <laughs> me. All right. So what is it that you do that you're really passionate about? Well, I think probably the thing I'm most passionate about in terms of what I do is my teaching. I think that through teaching, you can shape the minds of future generations. We think of ourselves as training the social architects of the future. And so I, I enjoy that. It's a great passion. Uh, I think that, you know, it's something great teachers are born. They're not made. I think that this somehow this is a gift that I have. And it's reflected in the popularity of many of my classes. But I think also, in addition to that, uh, my first love was writing. And so I, I remember the struggles I had trying to be a writer to get my work out. And I've now written three books. And we have them right here. At least two of them. Two. And then um, my most recent book is called Dangerous Spaces uh, Beyond the Racial Profile. Uh, and that's really about why the criminal justice system is in the situation that it is. So people often talk about the concept of structural racism or systemic racism. On this book over here, when did you write yes. this book? This was published in 2016. 2016. 16. 16. Yes, it took me and, at least five years. And to what does that say? What does that say right there? We can't breathe. Now, So here we are a couple of years later. Yes. Right? And where that is pretty close to that was was probably, unfortunately, one of the most infamous statements, quotes, around the globe. Yes. Right? And, and and when we look at that, the, the film that was done by the lady who was just honored, right, mm. for her being persistent and being there. When you designed this yes. years ago, yes. what was on your mind? Well, I was trying to communicate the urgency of the situation that we really, in 2016, were already in a justice crisis that there were people, my people, black people, and, and, and even beyond it, people of color, who were being victimized with really no recourse. You see, there's such a thing as a perfect victim or, and, and uh, you know, so a victim is someone who has been hurt, but they usually have the means. But what I would call a perfect victim is someone who has no means of getting redress. And so, you know, out of maybe 200 people, maybe one would get a policeman who was actually held accountable. And so we want, we're much better now, but even today, it's difficult to hold police accountable for, for, for now I, I do believe this. I think that everyone should be presumed guilty, but the problem that we have in our society is that racism is very real. It's a real thing. And, and there are instances in which blacks are uh, too many, uh, and not merely many, but it's a systemic problem. In these, uh, my father used to have a radio show on WEDR and WMIE yes. in the 60s, uh, and he had one called the Gospel Hour. Yes. Right? And so Grant and I and my older brother grew up in a, a very, back then, I didn't know that it was liberal. I just thought that that's the way that it yes. was. So we were, we were around blacks all the time. The, and my father's, he was on the radio and TV and on radio. He, his uh, people that he interviewed were typically black ministers. Mm -hmm. When my father Ron took us, me and my, I think it was Grant, 
to St. Augustine in the in the middle 60s. I mean, one for on the marches, I remember it's uh, like it's burning in my brain. Mm. And I would see the blacks marching down, marching down the street. The whites were lined up on the sidewalks with the, I think, National Guard there. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what did those people do to these people? What is the problem <laughs> from innocence? Right? Yes, understood. Understood. And and so we just didn't get it, right? And then uh, the time would go on, and I went to Palmetto High School, and the the, the black school was Killian High School. That's where the mm -hmm. blacks went. It was across the street. When uh, when I started delivering newspapers, I delivered newspapers for, I don't know, 16 to 18 years old. I was never stopped by the police, mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One day, I have a dark Puerto Rican friend with a big afro. The first night out, he gets stopped. Of course, of course, right. Of course. And and so I was like, what, "What? How did that happen?" Because it was the way he looked. Same route as me for appearance. all those years going, going through there. Appearance, appearance. And we see that more and more often. And one of the things that we have learned here, especially in the past fifteen months since the pandemic, is real conversations with real people. Good. And I was with a young lady. And she said to me, uh, I'm to be black. And she says, you know, my experience, Michael, in a, when I walk in a store is different than yours. Absolutely. Right. And it wasn't until this last year, and even though we grew up, right, with people of all colors and all religions, right, she was crying. And I started crying. And it was just like overwhelming. Right. Right before that, maybe right after that, I wind up at a meeting with Dwight Bullard, black, the black city manager in North Miami, black publisher, Susie McDowell. No, Susan right. McDowell. Yes. Uh, black publicist, publicist. Yes. And they said, okay, Michael, you're the white guy. And I went, what? I was like stunned. <laughs> they said, well, you are. We're going to do this show, but you got to do the white show. And we talked about getting along. Yes. Right? And I said, but, you know, we talk about it. I yes. said, but do we really? Well, why don't you cover more black news, Michael? And I said, because quite frankly, we don't have products there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in that neighborhood that is black. And it's up to the PR people to tell us why we should do that. And so Susan McDowell was telling me all the things that, that blacks are doing that need, need more coverage. I said, okay. I said, I get it. But it really wasn't until I sat here with African-Americans in Miami-Dade County, including Reuben Roberts, I think that's his name, mm -hmm. the, now the former president of the NAACP down there. When he thanked us, Grand and I for giving opportunities. I didn't look at it like an opportunity. I did it because that's what we're supposed to do as human beings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This pandemic made it so clear that anybody, you could be blind and see the difference, all right? Yeah. And I look what's, what CHI did. I look what the county did to reach out, all right? Mm -hmm. And to say, here are people that are disconnected, all right? Mm -hmm. That are I'm, in lots of ways, all right? And, and they needed help. But we wonder, how did that happen? So we're about the same age, I think. I, I think I have a little less gray hair, but maybe I don't. <laughs> how did that happen? I, and where where are race relationships going right? Yes. nowadays? Well, I mean, you've asked a lot of questions, but let's start here. First of all, I want to say that your experience with the Puerto Rican friend resonates with mine. Uh, profiling, as we understand it, uh, is something that usually occurs because of appearance, uh, proximity, or association. So it's, it's how you look, it's where you are, proximity to the inner city, uh, or who you're associated with. In your case, 
uh, it was association. And, and appearance works like this. We have gone through over the last 30, 40 years an incredible experience in which we witnessed the elaboration of a set of stereotypes, which are very vicious and destructive. The, the initial stereotypes that we start with in slavery are there was the idea of Nat, and Nat was the criminal, and there was the idea of Sambo, and Sambo was the, the dim-witted child. And those stereotypes really define the reasons why we had segregation and, and why we had slavery. They come from slavery. But since the civil rights era, we have developed a whole new mythology about race. And that mythology begins with the idea that there's such a thing as an urban thug or gangster. And this uh, notion of urban thug is that blacks tend to steal or blacks tend to be violent or blacks tend to be uh, deviant. And that myth, those, that set of myths has created uh, uh, many of the problems we have. Uh, what was what propelled them further was in 1968 we had in urban rebellions I would call them and the rebellions were based on the fact that blacks were living in 19 1968 in conditions which were uh, incredible whites were wealthy blacks had no jobs you had no and, and so it was an incredible gulf between and so the frustration welled up and that was what that's what really what the riots were and what it what really was was a cry for structural change blacks were saying we need real change and to still structural let's say use the word real we need real change we need real equality and and the Kerner commission agreed with blacks and said look we have two societies or we're becoming that one black one white separate and equal but instead of heeding the call for structural change he says how do we get here this is how we got here instead of heeding the call for structural change uh creating good schools in black community giving us giving blacks in the inner city rebuilding the inner city instead of doing that which we did not do go to the black community today you'll see that the schools were sec that were segregated in 1950 are still segregated in terms of just the demographics not by law but the demographics the separation is still there and also the the housing the way that ghetto looks it still looks as bad as it did in the 1950s well the because we didn't invest instead of investing we disinvested and city of south miami had an ordinance passed in yes. 27 and it said specifically, this yes. is where the black shall live. Yes. Almost 100 years later, coming yeah. up in five years, it's still predominant right here in South Florida. Of course. And, and those those patterns have been locked into place by, in, in part, benign neglect. It's one, I, don't know, I don't know what's benign, but it's neglect. So one of the commissioners, this is, came up about 10 years ago, maybe a little bit longer, said the city wanted to pay homage to it, and I think it rescind it. So one of the commissioners says, why do we have to do that? And we said, because that's what we do mm -hmm. as a society. It was a big stink. It was like, oh, my goodness. All right. So the guy was about 60 years old. He thought everything was just, you know, just fine. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. So we know there's a lot of people that think that it's just all good and that it's all okay, that it's all okay. but it's not. When, as I mentioned earlier, when the Miami Herald would write about black and black crime yes. black, or crime, and they would identify them as yes. black. That the comments, right, they were left, were terrible. And just every vile thing that you, you can mean say, hateful. Hateful. Yeah. Yes, yeah. terrible. So and racist. Right, right here, yes, in Miami Dade County. And so that seems to not just the underpinning, but that seems to be a general theme, at least for people over the age of 40-ish, I guess. And maybe there's plenty in other places. 
We are here in South Miami. It's tragic. Right? And on 62nd Avenue, and people years ago, they wouldn't come down there, right? And I would tell people in public meetings, you're going to tell us what we need when you will not come down. You will not let your mother come over here. You will not let your daughter come over here. I said, why don't you come over here and make a difference, mm -hmm. right? It's so touchy that people are afraid to have that conversation. One of the decisions that I made is my best conversations about this issues are when there are people of different colors in the same room. Right, right, right. I would not have a real conversation with a bunch of white people, right? Because I don't want somebody to think that I'm, I'm a racist. We're having conversations about race and about getting along, right? Mm -hmm. And so we know that conversation has to take place, right? And after seeing the disparity in life, right mm -hmm. here in Miami-Dade County, and then, like, of course, across the country, we realize how people get left out. Right, right, And ignored, right, right. and that means their children get I would love to talk about left out, for example. Let's put some structure into the left out. You see, in the 1980s, even before, began before, but intensifying 1980s, you had something called deindustrialization. Now, not so much in Miami. Miami did a restructuring of the economy, but deindustrialization means that my father worked at Bethlehem Steel. Uh, all over the in major cities, blacks were employed in industry. M many of those, if not most of those factories closed. Now, when they closed, that created a, a crisis in terms of where blacks are going to work. Uh, in addition to that, at the same time in the 1980s, when Ronald Reagan was president, the, the programs, social programs, stopped. It's, I'm oversimplifying only slightly, but the money was being invested by the federal government in jobs programs and other programs like that basically stopped. So you had disinvestment, deindustrialization, and then in addition to that, you had the drug war. And between that, for people in the inner city, whatever you know, civil rights laws passed had very little meaning because their lives were where are they going to get a job? There was joblessness, chronic, systemic, where are they going to, how are they going to start a business? They don't, and, and the schools became, beginning around 1988, increasingly more segregated. From 1988, resegregation took place in the inner city schools. But, uh, so this is like a resegregation, deindustrial. So, so blacks have, it's just, it's almost like a perfect storm of inequality. We call it structural inequality, and that's what I'm writing about. And what the problem you're seeing in the criminal justice system, largely, not entirely, but largely result from the fact that we never fixed the problems of segregation. We never, not for those people in the city. Now, what we did was there's a talented 10th who got opportunities. That's where progress came. But for people who are still landlocked in that in a city. You're writing about this in your new book. Well, yeah. I mean, well, yes. And in all my books, that's a theme. Each book represents a different aspect, just like you're trying to touch an elephant. It has many different. That's the 12 blind men. They, yeah, they right, will, right, right. They will each tell you. So my, my current book is called The Presumption. And the presumption represents the idea that if you want to understand at core what racism is, it's a presumption. People think it's hate. Well, it can become that. But it, it begins as a presumption, a presumption of inferiority, a presumption of criminality, a presumption of dangerousness. And you see that presumption in so many ways that blacks, 80 percent of, of, of blacks experience discrimination when they try to buy a house. You see that in terms of who gets arrested for drugs. So, for example, blacks and whites, believe it or not, use drugs at statistically identical rates. 
use cocaine at statistically identical rates. But blacks for many years have been arrested at like six, 10, seven, 11 so, times so, so as many. Well, I think it's it's in part because of the way way we've organized something called the drug war. So in the when we started this so-called war on drugs in 1982, it was literally called the war on drugs. It's there was no war on drugs. There is no war on drugs. This is a war on certain groups of people. Remember, I told you that we had a stereotype of a criminal. Well, that stereotype of a drug dealer is a person who lives in the inner city. And he has a gold chain, twisty braids, saggy pants, and he's selling drugs. And they're afraid he'll, uh, that he'll come to. And so that's what we did. We, we targeted the inner city. And, we, and by targeting inner city, that's why you get, you get incredible disproportions. So 50, at one point, 52% of the people who were going to prison for drugs were black. And I think Richard Nixon did his, share, his fair part. He started it. And all the hippies and all the blacks under control by... Enforcement yes. is wild enforcement of yes. uh, of marijuana. Right? Yes, and uh, and we see that at, at the Nixon's day, the main issue was heroin, but marijuana was the symbol, the iconic symbol of counterculture. So and one of my mythologies floating around in my head is, well, maybe the the blacks are more apt to do their drug their marijuana smoking outside their houses instead of inside because they don't have the air conditioning. <laughs> this too is hot more systemic the than that. They, they targeted the inner city. And, and, and it not, not just in the drug war, which, which certainly was the first shoe to fall. In New York City, you have something called a war on guns. And so Giuliani says, we're going to go after guns. But he only went after guns in so-called high crime areas. Those high crime areas were almost always either black or Puerto Rican. There, there was, if you were white and you had a gun, I mean, the guns were more likely to be found in white neighborhoods, but he targeted. I, I wrote a piece a couple of years ago about, yes. about um, the, uh, uh, essentially we called it shooting fish in a barrel when the police would go over to a, a project, black project, and they would catch the kids, you know, smoking pop because the grandma was tired of all the marijuana going all over. And I wrote about it and I said, it sounds like it's just like what happens in Coral Gables, but they have really good air conditioners and they're inside their house and they're right. smoking in there. This is before it became legal. And I got a lot of pushback about from locals. Well, you know, the blacks is like, I said, I'm just, just an opinion. All right. I didn't know the figures were about the same. Right? Yeah. Right. 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 And, and so it's, it's the, it's in a fancier car instead of the windows down and they look like me instead of look like with, you know, with, with cr crazy clothes on. And you could have your viewers do this, ask them, you know, what is their picture of a criminal? What is their picture of someone who uses, who sells drugs? What is their picture of someone who sells crack? Who you, and so it, it, it's, it's our idea of crime, our idea of criminals, our idea of drug dealers. Our, all of those are stereotypes and, and, and mythology. And at one point we had uh, specific myths. There was a myth of the crack baby. There, were, there was the myth of the super predator. And so this mythology actually drove policy. When in 1986, when the, the, the guy named DeLulio comes out with a book called Body Count, uh, before that, he had, he had already, the book was some of the codification stuff he had said all the time, that there's a generation of youth. They don't pack lunches, they pack guns in their lunch boxes, and they're completely remorseless, ruthless killers. And so at this, and in 1989, you had this group of blacks who were uh, accused of rape. 
And they, they were later exonerated when they found that they could not have committed the rape. And what was interesting, these this were the Central Park Five, and they were called wolves and monsters and so forth. And they were innocent. And it's the hysteria, it's the moral, what we call moral panic that was generated by these stories, the myths of the crack baby, the uh, Central Park joggers, the, uh, the, the, the super predator, all those myths created fear. And that fear drove um, the drug war. It drove massive incarceration. And, it, and that fear, which is still latent in our society, drives much of what we experience as police brutality, violence, and death. And so what we're up against are, are, myth, are, are myths that have become so deeply embedded, they've caused widespread fear. So let's think about this. So let's say it's a, a per, an African-American that goes yes. to a church that is almost all white. Yes. And then you have a white guy going to a church that's almost all black. Do you think if those people are the, the same age, all right, same gender, that they have the same feeling when they walk into the, a church of opposite color? Well, no, I think that this one of the interesting things is that the the, the, the 12 o'clock, 11 o'clock, whenever church is one of those segregated hours in America. And I think that what's interesting, too, though, is Can I ask you to repeat that again. Well, I would think that the hour in which we go to church, whether it's 11 or 12, I don't know what it, which, which is actually closer, but that is the most segregated hour in America. We worship separately. We also still have a highly segregated society. You know, ask how many blacks live in Coral Gables. I think it's much better now than it was before. When, you know, I would say 30 years ago, it was probably maybe. But it still does. We, we, in other words, our, the neighbors we live in do not look like America. Okay, so they sh they should. They generally don't. So let's look at the different groups. And this really came out of the group where with Susan McDowell, and then we had a really open conversation. I said, you know, you say you want to get along, but when it comes election time, we send messages to the African Americans. This is for the Hispanic or Cuban. This is for Venezuelan. This is for the Catholics. I said, so at election time, we're going to do that. I said, but let me ask you something. In the in the legal field, there's yes. the uh, women's bar, Hispanic bar, German American, <laughs> the Black American bar. Is there a white man's bar? No. <laughs> well, whites are, are really a minority, are they? Yeah. Yes, they. I mean, you could argue that white males are, but you see, it's about power. The groups that you're mentioning are groups that have been disempowered traditionally, and and so they, these are groups who are trying to take back what they feel has been denied them uh, by the by. By, by inequality. So is it is it wrong for somebody to say, listen, I want to be around other people that I'm comfortable with, all right? Yes. Whether it's a Jewish community or Catholic or Venezuelan, or yes. I want to move to Little Haiti or Little Havana or Little, um, whatever it is, downtown. And, and I think we do that naturally. And the question is, can we do that without being racist, all right? Because that's just, I'd like to go to this church or that church. I think it's good. I love that. Yeah, I think you should be welcome at any any of those churches. So I was with uh, now Congresswoman uh, Maria Salazar, and she had asked me, um, yeah. Michael, um, you don't get the socialism thing. And I said, I don't. I said, but what I do get is that the African-Americans here in Miami-Dade County need help and that I have white privilege. And let's talk about the Everglades and let's talk about sea rise. 
what and what I what I realize there is that we each have our own issues, and the people that have power, whatever color they are, they need to stand up and bring along the other people that need some help. And when I think about them, seeing pictures and videos of the of, of uh, the marches in the sixties, yeah, I see ministers and I see Jewish people and I see blacks working together to try to make things better. It's okay if you have whatever privilege that is, but to do something with it and not beat yourself on the back because you happen to be born a certain way, right? Because certainly recently, in the last 10 years, oh, you know, you, 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 you have all this stuff. Right? Yeah, well, I think, I think white privilege is real. I think that we need to be conscious of that. But I think what we should not do is we should, we should not bash anyone because of who they are. People don't choose to be white. They don't choose to be male. They don't choose any of those things. So we shouldn't bash people, anyone ever for who they are. Now, I think that th there's a distinction between what I would call the civil rights narrative and the, the ethos of the social media. So under the civil rights narrative, the notion is you don't hate anyone, even though someone may have done something cruel to you. Uh, you don't hate someone who has shot at you. You don't hate, hate someone who has hit you with a billy club. You don't hate someone who has oppressed you. You don't hate anyone for any reason. Now that was basic, that is basic to the civil rights narrative. The narrative today is more of, well, you know, that's that, that may be the old style, but we want to, there's a more aggressive, a more militant attitude. But I think that, that those who have an open mind should really pay attention to what was said in that era, because I think you can learn a lot from the era of civil rights, the era of Malcolm, the era of, of, of and I think what's interesting is that even though Malcolm is Malcolm X is viewed as sort of the uh, apostle of violence, he really was not. Uh, Malcolm was trying to focus on systems. So for example, today, identity politics seems to focus on identities. And it's almost as though there's certain identities, if we can just bash them enough, we will achieve freedom. That's not how it works. The, 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 the goal of Malcolm was to focus on those structures and systems in society that cause oppression and to try to eradicate those. But the, the, the idea of today that we want to, whether it's police or whether it's people who are patriotic or people who support Trump, you don't bash anyone. You don't hate anyone. And the goal is to try to identify those systems and structures in society, institutions in society, which are causing problems. So, uh, so not don't hate people, hate the systems that result in oppression. Identify that. So here dismantle I'm, here, that. Here I'm over the age of 60 and wondering about all these questions that perhaps I sh could have, should have answered uh, years ago, which is, can we identify somebody by the color of their skin yes. to to physically identify them rather than what Martin Luther King said, I one day I hope that my children will be judged by the content of their character. So I'd ask my father and I ask myself all the time if there's a room filled with... I still long for that day. I, 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 I'm, I'm still waiting for that day to come. Well, but I, <laughs> Every day it's a little closer. So my question, we have three minutes left. If there's a room full of people and the person that I want you to recognize is that beautiful black girl in the back, all right? Is it okay to say, hey, out of all the hundred people here, see the black girl in the back, that's who I want you to, to talk to. It's okay to say that, isn't it? Well, I think it's, it's certainly more than okay to encourage those who have left out to be included in the conversation, to listen to those who historically 
we have been deaf to. I think that's absolutely right. And I think that while it's going to be difficult for whites to understand my situation, I think it, that's something that all whites should try to do is to listen and to listen more, listen more closely. One, one thing I would urge people to do is to identify the idea that there's a lot you don't know. If you want to know what racism is, what structural racism, then one way to do it is to read. I would start with my books. One is called uh, Dangerous Spaces, the myth, uh, the, the, you know, beyond the racial profile. The other is called Fear of a Hip Hop Planet, America's New, new Dilemma. And those are available now. When is your new book going to be published? Probably at the end of the year, by the end of the year, I will have a new book and it's called The Presumption, Racial Injustice. Well, when the first copy is out, you're going to come back and we're going to talk about that. Professor, thank you so much. Glad All to right, be Donald here. Donald Jones, a, a lively conversation and I'd like to continue it one day. And oh, we're going to look right over there. And in 30 seconds, Professor, why don't you talk to a young lawyer yes. all right, and tell him about his, uh, the future of, uh, ahead of him. Well, I think think that the future is very bright because you stand on the shoulders of giants, giants like Martin Luther King, uh, so many giants, the people who have blazed trails as partners in law firms, people who have blazed trails as professors, uh, people who have blazed trails as uh, journalists and doctors. And so what I want you to do is to believe that no matter what it is you want to do, you can achieve that. And the only limit to your imagination is how hard you're willing to work. Tremendous. Thank you again, Professor Donald Jones, University of Miami, teaches constitutional law. And again, this is live with Miami's communities. Thank you very much for your time and have a great day. Bye.